is pretty fringe too, if you understand who he really is. Welcome everybody to another episode and we are unrefined today. I've got my coffee and our guest, which I will introduce in a second, has her coffee too. And we've got Lindsay and uh, we're going to get in the word today, but we're going to like explore some interesting uh, nuances and different things in the word today. And I'm really excited about this because anytime I can get in the word and get geeky about it, I love it. And so Today we have with us Dr. Vicky Joy. That's what Camp Ramon calls her. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Don't spread these rumors. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're going to dive into the scriptures. Uh, where are we going today, Vicky? Can you kind of lay out where we're going to go some? Yeah, absolutely. So we had kind of decided we're going to go on a different uh, route than the sleep paralysis stuff, which is great because I do. I love talking about sleep paralysis simply because when I talk about it, people who are in bondage to it get set free. And that's really exciting. Yeah. But yeah. also as a believer in Christ, sometimes I just want to talk about the word. I want to talk about the, the light instead of the darkness all the time. And so I decided to go with a study in Ephesians 6, specifically verse 12. So we'll be touching on some dark things here as well. But every time I kind of just in passing sort of break something down from this verse or I explain something or I bring this into into a podcast, I always have at least one person come afterwards and say, you need to do like a whole book or a whole study on Ephesians 6. And so I figured I would would go with the masses and with with the uh, constructive feedback I've gotten and said, let's let's dive into Ephesians 612. All right. I would be remiss right now, Vicki, if I didn't tell you this. Uh, me and my buddy Tim, who we have our discipleship group band of brothers, we're also starting to help people that have all this body of information translate that from information and sermons and all that kind of stuff into books. So wow, maybe we can hook you okay. up with that, you know? Yep. So <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah. So I'm excited about this. So you said Ephesians chapter six. Yep, Ephesians chapter six, and we can, you know, color outside of the lines, but I'm going to really dive, deep dive into yeah. some of the vocab that we find in verse 12. Okay, all right. So um, I'll, I'll read it if it's okay. It's in, I, I'm reading out the yep, New King do. James. Uh, verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Mm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've got several italics in there. So that means they're not, that, that, those words aren't in there. So I guess you're going to get into that, huh? Yeah. So that's exactly where I wanted to start because depending on what translation you read, there's all sorts of different words used. You know, sometimes it's rulers and, uh, spiritual forces of wickedness and worldly forces of darkness and archons and principalities. And it depends on. So what we're going to do is we're going to go all the way back to the Greek because uh, the, the Greek is the same word every time. So we're going to look at what the heart of those various translations are getting at. And uh, we're also going to explore some of the other words, not just the various entities that are, that are in these high places, but we're going to look at what is that um what are the high places or the heavenly places, as some translations say, 
We're going to talk about the word darkness in there because there are some extremely cool nuances. Uh, the thing that I love about Koine Greek is it is such a massively rich language. And I like to speculate that maybe the reason why the fullness of time when Christ came was a time when people were, were writing things in Koine Greek was because the Greek really accommodates the depth and the layers of the, the gospel, which has so many meanings to it and uh, so many near, far, or already not yet sort of things going on. And the Greek really accommodates that. But with that said, Koine Greek is not the same as classical Greek. Classical right. Greek, you know, the, the Greek of Homer, massively even more complex version of the language. Koine Greek was like the abonics. It was the sort of uneducated street language of the time. And Local, so what I love Anna. about that, yep, yep, absolutely. So what I love about that is it, it, it it's the New Testament and therefore the gospel and the unfolding of redemptive history is put into the hands of the common people so Amen. we can understand. But yep. at the same time, he picks like this perfect language to to put it in because there's so many aspects. If you're a grammar geek and a word nerd like I am, the yeah, Greek is just so amazing. You can take one word and it can it can mean a whole paragraph. Mm -hmm. So I love it. So let's dive in. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that Koine Greek around the time of the writing of the New Testament was like kind of trendy in Rome even. I mean, there were Greek-speaking communities there, but it had become kind of like trendy or something to speak it. Yeah, yep. It was very much, I, yeah. I would totally agree with that. You know, right now we have, you know, we have the King's English, and then we have mm -hmm. American English, and then we have the English of the young kids. You know, like if you go on social media, if you're too old, you don't understand what <laughs> anyone's saying. You got the what the cool kids are saying. You got all the the slang and all that. Mm -hmm. That that's kind of like um, I, I would like to think that if Christ came back now in our era and the Bible was going to get written, it would be a bunch of Gen Zers writing it in their in their in their lingo because you know that's what we want is we're passing it on to the next generation and Amen. there's some yeah. con there's some controversy and there's some fun stuff in in the greek paul you know paul was like a worldly guy before he became a christian and he he could get his feathers ruffled and you look at some of the things he's saying and if we understood the context and the culture of some of the greek phrases that he's using He's talking pretty street in some cases and things that you probably wouldn't even want to say in church because the, the uptight ones would probably get upset that you said that in, mm. in, a, in, a, yeah. in a church. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm doing I'm preaching through Galatians right now uh, for, for the next six months. And yeah, Galatians, I mean, just the one part that is even made into English about I wish they would emasculate themselves. I yes. mean, that 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 is in the Greek is very provocative. And, and yes. Very grody. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> <You know? laughs> absolutely. The, the the filthy rags and even the word he chooses in some cases for dung would mm -hmm. be the word that, that Christians wouldn't say. <laughs> say. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. Scubalon. Mm. Scubalon. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Dookie. <laughs> <laughs> Official coine. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, if we can dive, let's just take it in order. Let's start with the heavenly places, the heavenly realms, the high places. Okay. And I here's the disclaimer that we always have to put at the beginning. Um, there are many synonyms for these high places. 
uh, some of these synonyms can be very triggering, needlessly triggering to, to Christians. And there's really nothing offensive in any of these terms if you just take them at face value. Uh, heavenly places, high places is, is the biblical terms. But that is the, those are the terms that born-again Christians understand or biblically read Christians understand. And when we're sharing the gospel with people who aren't biblically read, we want to make sure that they know what we're talking about. So sometimes we have to borrow their terms so that they mm-hmm. understand and that we're on the same page. So mm. we would say heavenly places, high places, but someone in the new age would call it the astral realm or the astral plane. Some people will call it the second heaven. Now, when I say second heaven, I'm not going into Dante or some arcane old, like where we're splitting yeah. everything up into levels. And I'm not attaching some complex theology or hermeneutic to that. I'm simply using a synonym so that all parties that are coming to the table are on the same page. We're not talking about the heavenly places that when we look up into the sky and we look at the stars at night and we point at the Big Dipper, we're not talking about that heaven, the visible to the terrestrial inhabitants. We're not talking about the throne room of God where John the Revelator saw the throne room uh, open up to him on the island of Patmos. So what, what Paul's trying to do here is differentiate Hey, human beings that I'm writing to, I'm not talking about the sky. Uh, believers and followers of Yeshua and of biblical and Torah, uh, you know, traditions. I'm not talking about the throne room where the the God we worship lives. Like There's, the third heaven, would that be considered like the third heaven that yep. Paul talked about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So it's merely when I say second heaven, it is only to differentiate that we are not talking about the third heaven. We're not talking about that place that uh, Paul and John and Elijah and Moses uh, got glimpses into, right? right? So that's my lengthy disclaimer, because what I find is when we start throwing out these buzzwords at the very beginning of the show, if someone gets triggered, they 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 lose the whole rest of, of what's said because they're, they're hung up on, on these words that are highly charged, and they're highly charged on purpose. Language is a weapon these days. We know. We already Mm -hmm. know that. Look what they're doing to Mm -hmm. our language. And language and linguistics and etymology, it's a weapon. And so if they can charge these words and keep people in division and keep people fighting, then the truth can uh, can never get out. We never get to it because we're arguing over the semantics. So uh, whatever you're comfortable with, uh, I'm not married to any of these terms. I'll use heavenly places and high places here because we're we're taking it straight from the Greek. Uh, so anyway, one way to avoid all of the linguistic and cultural confusion is to go straight to the Greek, which is epurenios. And this is the word for uh, the, the heavenly places, the heavenly regions, I think technically is probably what the, the, the lexicon would say. So Epiranios, for those who want to check my work, it's Strong's number 2032 in the Greek, uh, Greek Strong's dictionary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The heavenly regions. And so I'm going to read here uh, from directly from them. So you know it's not me messing stuff up. It, it's the heavenly regions, but more specifically. So this is, this is the crux of the matter. Um, very specifically to the context of Ephesians 6.12, and I'm reading directly here from the Strong's. The heavenly regions, but more specifically in Ephesians 6.12, it refers to the lower heavens or the heavens of the clouds, Ephesians 6.12, American edition. So again, that is just a more concise way of saying what we just said. 
it, we're not, we're, we're talking about this lower heaven. In other words, it is not the throne room of God, which any cursory reading of this verse should be evident because it goes to talk about enemies of God that we are at war with live in this place. So unless you want to get into a really dark cosmology of all of these demons and fallen ones share the space with, with Jesus and they're somehow, you know, competing for CEO in the same space, you know, that that's going to get a little sticky. And I'll leave, uh, I will leave the one caveat that mm-hmm. if you ascribe to the divine council doctrine, uh, there, there very well could be fallen ones, etc., who are allowed into the throne room or who are in certain spaces or at least show up for the board meetings, right? Job, right? I mean, yes, the, exactly. the, the, the Satan coming in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So I'll leave that there. I hope that I've made that clear that, okay, look, we are talking about some sort of physical or spiritual or cosmic or astral or dimensional space, not visible uh, to the terrestrial eye. It's not the throne room of God. So we're dealing with this other space that spiritual entities dwell and move around in. All right. I have two questions for, two questions for you real quick. Um, yeah, and, and if, this, if, if this is not the place for me to ask these, then just, just shut me down. But the, fir- <laughs> the, the first is, um, what, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the terminology that the, the ancient Celtic church called thin spaces. Now, what would and then I want to ask you the same along the same vein portals mm-hmm. are all are all portals are, are do they go into the astral realm or the second heaven or is that what they basically are about as well as these thin spaces even though the Celts I mean I'm not talking about the the pagan Celts I'm talking about the Christian Celts you know yeah yeah, yeah. They, they, they they would try to take something unholy like these lands where they did occult rituals and make them sanctified with these thin spaces. I mean, have you heard of that, that such yes. thing? Yep. Absolutely. These are uh, thin spaces or liminal spaces or places yeah. where the veils yeah. are thin. This is where we get into the, um, the crossroads can be a liminal space. That's why everybody sells their soul at the crossroads, right? Interesting. Uh, doors, yeah. doors, windows, mountains. Obviously we see tons of, uh, interdimensional Whoa. travel on mountains in scripture, if you're Eat, reading it correctly. E- well, Eden would be a big thin space originally, Eat, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I think that when Moses went up onto the mountain, that was a dimensional space. I don't think that he was just uh, meeting in some sort of national park picnic area there where <laughs> God came down from heaven and, you know, acquiesced. And I think that he was dimensionally transported. And when he was when he was given, I'm using my little air quotes here for those on audio, uh, when he was given like the blueprints to the temple and things like that, I don't think he was sitting down at a drafting board and, and receiving instructions. I think he was giving, being given a tour. Uh, he was being mm. led through that. And the, the way he got that blueprint was he saw it with his own eyes. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Another, another, this is one of my favorite liminal spaces in scripture. Um, is when, well, the obvious one is the transfiguration. They went on the top of the mountain. They saw him glorified. 
Um, another one is what I would call one of the biblical Faustian bargains is when Satan went to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, he took him to the top of a high, uh, the highest mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Well, anyone who's ever been to Israel and knows the topography, you can climb to the highest uh, elevation in Jerusalem or Israel, and you're not going to see all the kingdoms of the world. They went to the top of a mountain, and that was a liminal space. That was a dimensional portal. Tower of mm. Babel is an yeah. obvious one. John, you know, John's, uh, you know, at, on the island of Patmos, he saw the throne of God. He saw a lamb like one slain on the throne. That's not something you're going to see in the sky from an island, right? So mm. there's all sorts of examples, and I, I'm J- not Jacob. Even like yeah, Jacob's letter, kind of. That's that's yeah. the one I was going to forget. That is one of my favorites too. He was in the city of Luz, and if you go online and you get the official narrative and you look up like Luz, like the etymology of Luz, they'll say it. It's like an almond tree, an almond branch. If you get really sophisticated and you dig even deeper, they'll tell you that Luz was kind of like a uh, a doorway. So now we're, we're in we're in liminal spaces. But if you yeah. go all the way back and you study Luz, and I'm talking like way back to like, you know, the early, early civilizations and antediluvian civilizations, Luz was an ancient word for, this is exciting, um, Luz was the, the part of the body, the bone at the base of the spine that we call in English the coccyx. And they called it the Luz. Now, anyone who knows anything about Kundalini awakenings or Eastern meditation or... That's where the um, spine begins. That's where it all starts. That's where the serpent uncoils. And all of the undulations and the bouncing and the yogas and the tantric sex and all of these like physical movements they're making is to get that serpent that's coiled at the, at the coccyx to wake up and unravel up to the, to the, to the pineal gland. So... Uh, they had things, uh, I, I don't want to go too far into this, but it's fascinating. Uh, back in the days of like Rome, if you went into their, like their court building where they did all of the, the government and the politics and the lawmaking, they were, they were worshipers of the black stones. And so whether it was Cybele mm-hmm. or, or whoever, they would have these black stones, which were in essence meteorites, which had, had come down and yeah. you you can get into all sorts of yeah the, uh, the Kaaba and, and Mecca <laughs> yep yep and th- but these stones were were meteorites that these black stones and one could speculate if if one wants perhaps these were fragments of Rahab um, maybe oh Earth, wow maybe Earth is a, uh, a a minefield of fragments of Rahab so they would go and they would find these black rocks, they would venerate them. Uh, They would put them into their temples and into their places of politics. And they would kind of use them like brazen, brazen heads and, and divining umen thumen kind of things. Right. And they would Mm -hmm. uh, consult with these black stones and use various forms of divination to figure out if they should, how they should rule in a certain judgment or if a law should be made or who to elect onto certain seats of power, et cetera, et cetera. So What's really interesting is if meteorites come through the atmosphere at a certain speed and a certain temperature, uh, they can turn from black shards into what we would know as like sea glass. You know how rocks that are pounded by the sea turn into those beautiful like glass stones. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. When meteorites um, are under the right conditions and they come into our atmosphere, they turn into these beautiful, shiny, smooth, yellow stones. And they're called Jupiter stones or in, in the old days, a uh, Jupiter lapis. And so these Jupiter stones were used as divination tools because they were also seen as gods or fragments of the gods' um, homeland or DNA of the gods' homeland or whatever. And what they would do, and they had this in Luz, is they would they would they would go very similar to the Asclepions, where they would they would be sedated and they would fall asleep and let the serpents crawl on them, and they would have these astral experiences. They would go to these places, these these spa regions, these resort areas, and they would lay their heads at night on these Jupiter stones, and it would open up this liminal space, and they would communicate with the gods. So I know we like to think that every single guy in Scripture is a born-again Christian and went to church every Sunday and knows all the doctrine <laughs> and everything. But Not a Jacob, chance. <laughs> you, know, you know, Jacob... We oh wow, yeah, I know where you're going now. <laughs> we, we we don't know where he was spiritually. I mean, he's yeah. he's faking yeah. out his dad, he's lying to his dad, he he's he's faking out Laban, he he's you know, kind of um being very dishonest with everyone he's dealing with, his father-in-law and his his brother and his his you know father, and and so we don't know where he was spiritually at that point. I mean, it, it was probably yeah. just the God of Abraham and Isaac at that point, right? And the whole reason he's wandering around in the wilderness is he's been estranged from his own family because of his deception. He's estranged from his second family, his in-laws, because of his deception. So he probably went to Luz not to talk to God or the, the God of his father. He probably went there because he was mm-hmm. desperate and he, you know, he wanted to read his fortune. He wanted the tarot card. He wanted, he wanted oh, yeah. the God. Laid his head on a stone there. He laid mm-hmm. his head on a stone. Why is that an important detail there? So he lays his head on a stone and the heavens open up. He has an encounter with the real God. And what does he do before he leaves? He renames Coxix to Bethel, house of God. In other words, I'm claiming this for the God of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, because I saw the real God here. And I love that story. And I don't tell it too often because if you're not a believer, if you're not well read in the scriptures, this can be very easily twisted and contorted to lead people astray. Hey, there's a biblical example of where someone went to to practice some sort of divination and the real God showed up. So that means the real God can show up when I go to a psychic. The real God can show up when I astral project. And that is not the way those passages are meant to be interpreted and applied. Yeah, well, well mm. let, let me let me throw something out though. Let's reframe that, okay? I agree sure. with you, but let's let's reframe that. Let's reframe it to like Christians who who have like been through that kind of stuff. And and like you and I were talking about uh, texting the other day, even before they were saved, God was still working in their lives proveniently, you know, is the, is the term theological, proveniently in their lives constantly. I mean, when I was texting the other day, I was tearing up thinking about just different ways God worked in my life before I even had an idea who he was. Absolutely. So that that could be an example of that too. We could we could spin it around and and reframe that. Absolutely. I'm totally cool with that and I think the way maybe we can say it is God is allowed to work through whatever means he yes. wishes. We're yes. not. 
Mm-hmm. We, we have a very prescribed path with, yes. with boundary fences and, into ways that we are to seek him and not seek him, but he can mm. find us wherever he wants to. Well, it's, yeah. an, it's, it's about intent. Exactly. Uh, it, with him, it's about he can do whatever he wants, but with us, it's about intent. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Love it. All right. So, yeah, that. So, the liminal spaces, the portals, all of that. Very fascinating. That, of course, very much overlaps with my sleep paralysis uh, uh, research because those are liminal spaces that they're coming through. They're coming through doorways and windows at night, et cetera, et cetera. But um, sleep paralysis mm-hmm. and altered states of consciousness is not necessarily the only way you're going to step through one of those liminal spaces. Interesting. I, I wouldn't have thought that. Mm-hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit? Well, just in what we're talking about here, there's there's yeah. mountains and there's there's certain yeah. uh, charged places where we can go. Like like Jacob going to Luz probably went there on a very intentional uh, field trip because he, he wanted some information. But we have places here. Most of them are places where no Christian would want to go. But if you go somewhere where these rituals are done or where portals have been opened, if you're up at the Serpent Mound or you're in front of a Canaanite altar, or you're in some sort of checkerboard floored Masonic hidden basement in some hall under, you know, there, there are places where I don't necessarily think that you would have to be heavily sedated or in, in a state of altered state in order for these things to occur because full invitation has been given to those entities to come and go as they please. And so the way the deplorables, you know, the, the the worthless little eaters like us, we still have to go through all the motions. We still have to get our ayahuasca or, you know, and we have to do all these undulations to, to communicate mm. with the spirit realm. But for those who know what they're doing, it's probably just a telephone call away. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. So what do you think about uh, people who, who believe, you know, like I said, with the whole Celtic premise and, and this, I mean, I'm not Catholic by any means, but, but I do come from a sacramental tradition, even though I'm not yeah. an Anglican priest anymore. Uh, but I still believe in, in what I call sacraments and, and grace, grace type stuff. Do you think there is, is a way to cleanse these places that were spiritual pathways and then they become possibly portals for angels descending and, and ascending like for Jacob? You believe in that? Yeah, I absolutely believe that there's ways to locate and cleanse these areas. Uh, I think that there's way too many amateurs who feel uh, that they've been called yeah. to that, who are maybe, um, you know, in a don't quit your day job sort of a situation. Like there's a lot of people out there flailing around with all of their, you know, prayers that they read in the back of a, yeah. a, a book yeah. they read <laughs> once and things. Yeah. Uh, and I think that there are a lot of, genuinely motivated Christians who have a warrior spirit and who feel uh, that this is their calling that are, are, are putting themselves into very, very dangerous situations. And we've all heard the stories of, of people who have gone into these territories. They've lost their life. Yeah. Mm. There's a, there's a book, Needless Casualties of War, by a guy named John Paul Jackson that talks a lot about that. I mean, he's yes. charismatic, but but it he really does ream in and bring back some. You know, it's it's like a lot of that stuff's above our pay grade, so to speak. I mean, absolutely. I mean, if if Michael couldn't get the body from Satan of Moses, 
then you know who are we? And and so I, I tend to think the the higher you get up in what you're talking about, the second realm. This is not a matter of speaking to a demon and telling it to get out. You know, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, th- and these are powerful creatures or powerful beings that we don't need to be afraid of, but we do need to respect. I guess absolutely, absolutely. Well, and it's a different tactic. You know, like if I see a shadow person in my bedroom at night and I'm scared, I could say, you know, in the name of Jesus, get out and it's going to happen. But Mm -hmm. uh, there are other entities where you have to say, Jesus, mediate on my behalf right now, Mm -hmm. or, or Jesus, pull me out of this situation. This is another thing too. Um, with, with so much bad information out there about how to, to deal with spiritual, spiritual warfare, yeah. And especially now that they're getting a lot more, uh, these entities and the, the powers and, and the thralls here on earth that they have doing the dirty work for them, they're getting more sophisticated and they have more technology at their hands, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of spiritual attacks now where the name of Jesus is impervious because you're not dealing with another being. You're not dealing with some, someone with a conscious or, or any, anything like that. You're dealing with militaristic technology you're dealing with holograms Ooh. you're dealing with mm, with um hallucinations that um overlaid over your pineal gland so if it's a computer program or a hallucination they're not going to fear the name of jesus now if you call yeah. in the name of jesus jesus can come and and save you but what i'm finding is i have younger people now coming to me and they're, they're like i'm doing this thing that you're telling me and i'm crying out to the name of jesus and i'll say it a hundred times and it will not stop and so one of the things that uh, I think that we have to kind of consider in now in our generation is uh, maybe the better prayer just to get yourself woke up and out of the situation before you do the deeper things is instead of in the name of Jesus, get out, say mm-hmm. um, in the name of Jesus, get me out. And mm-hmm. then because if you're mm-hmm. submitting yourself to the authority of Jesus and you're asking Jesus as your father and as your bridegroom, I want out of this situation. I do not consent. He can pull you out even if they're refusing to leave. That's really good. That's really no. good. <laughs> Semantics. You got to beat them at their own game. They're, yeah. they're no, lawyers. You but, know? They yeah, they're legalistic. Le- yeah. 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 I mean, where does, where does legalism come from? It comes from the Satan. I mean, that, that's where, you know, that, look, at, look at the book of Job. I mean, they, they know how to find loopholes, you know, and, and our culture. I, I tell everybody all the time, we don't have a justice system. We have a legal system. And there's a difference between the two. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. These entities, it, it almost amuses me how, how they know how to wiggle their way out of, of, the, of the small print. And they are definitely those, those defense attorneys that don't care mm. if their client is innocent or guilty, don't care if the murderer gets put out on the street. They know the letter of the law to the degree that they can dupe us. And, and that's why I would say you know, to, to the Christians out there who might not understand or appreciate this wave of uh, kind of Christians going back to like Torah and going back to the law and going back to whatever, I will say one thing in, in, their, in their defense, and that is that, and we're going we're gonna to talk about this when we talk about darkness in, in Ephesians 6.12, so maybe I'll save it for then, but to the extent that we understand the law, uh, mm-hmm. Don't look at it as a salvation issue. Don't look right. at keeping the law as a salvation issue or God's going to love me more if I do this or I'm going to have a closer walk or I'm going to go to hell. The, to the extent that we understand the law and stay within its boundaries, 
it, it, it makes us almost invincible in spiritual warfare situations because they're coming at us with the law. And because we don't know it, we're falling into their traps quite easily. So knowledge of the law is, is uh, protection. You know, that's really interesting because that's how I've been really, uh, uh, just through some different discussions and, and just some stuff I've been through. That's how I've, I mean, Torah literally means teaching. And so I've begun to embrace it as I don't like the Christians that most, they, there's a statistic, I can't remember what it, what it is, but most uh, preachers preach majority of their sermons out of the New Testament, very rarely out of the Old Testament. Yeah. And I think that should, I think that should change. And, and I think the Torah should be seen as teaching, and I think it should be seen as it is a unveiling of how the world works. Yes. And, and as we look through that, it's like a magnifying glass of, of, of how the world works and the different laws that are, in, in that, that, are, that are going on in the world and stuff. Like what, new, like what New Agers would call universal law, we have the real law, which is the Torah, but it explains the spirit world, it explains the natural world. And, and this is something I don't know, I can't really go too deep with this. I haven't really studied it out, but I've almost, I've come to the place where I think the law existed before the fall, and I think it was intended to be a positive thing, and then we fell. And so now it's used against us because we fail. For example, sowing and reaping, that's a spiritual type law that's in the law. And that was always supposed to be intended like it is in nature, that we receive fruit from when we sow, when we, we reap. But now, since we're in sin, we, when we sow, we reap the whirlwind. Does that make sense, yes, Vicki? Absolutely. I'm so glad you worded it that way. I'm so glad you worded that way. Because, uh, and what I'm specifically talking about is that the, the law existed before the fall because if you, okay, I'm far more um, educated uh, on paper in my Greek than my Hebrew, but uh, the yeah, Torah, which, which people see as like the law and the, like mm-hmm. Old Testament, God, mean, Jesus, nice, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, the, the Torah actually is written in the same exact pattern and format and style as the ketubah. And the ketubah is the wedding contract between all Jewish and Semitic like wedding parties. Like the father, the father of the bride and the future son-in-law, they sit down and they, they put this covenant together. It's called the ketubah. The, the Torah is a ketubah. And mm-hmm. in fact, the, t- the tabernacle, the original tabernacle in the wilderness was built into the same style and structure and floor plan as the chuppah, which was the wedding tent. And so you've got this whole original plan of um, that I'm going to come into a covenant with this people. And when I carry them over the threshold into the chuppah and, you know, their father-in-law, or in this case, God the Father, God the Father and I will sign this ketubah on their behalf and once they come into our tent, I will be the sole provider and protector. I'll provide a home. I will feed and clothe. And, you know, like you said, it wasn't until we fell and decided we had a better idea that that original plan got distorted. And now we see it through a, a glass dimly, right? So, but mm-hmm. people tend to get their knickers in a twist whenever I start talking about the undeniable comparisons between the Torah and the tabernacle and really the whole 
the whole entire timeline of redemptive history in in comparison to a betrothal covenant uh people get uh icy and uh, you know why do you think that's so i mean i don't understand i mean the church is the bride of christ i mean i've had to it, I, I, I laugh at this all the time uh, i've heard people say the bride with combat boots but i mean still i mean i've had to learn as a man to deal with that, like women have to learn how to be sons of God, you know? And, and so yeah. it's, it was, it was hard at first for me with, with, with my gender as a male to embrace that. But now it's, I mean, the song, I read through the song of Solomon, like for months and I just see, I mean, that is one of the crucial things that the father wanted when he made us as he wanted a bride for Jesus. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I think I, you've hit on a big one. I think there's there's a two or three reasons why I think people, especially men, get get a little uncomfortable with these metaphors. And the one is what you just said. And I think for a woman, when a woman thinks of a betrothal, she thinks of the engagement. She thinks of the ring. She thinks of all the time they're going to spend together. She's going to, she, she thinks about the, I don't have to fix my own toilet anymore. And I don't have to worry. <laughs> if something goes bump in the night. He's going to get up and, and storm the castle for me. And, and we think about like the, the family we're going to have. And the, the, you know, we think about all of the, the aspects of what it means to be cherished by someone. Yeah. And, you know, so much of our culture has made engagement and wedding and marriage about the sex. And so if, if we now live in a culture where we can almost never separate marriage with, it's all about the sex and the sex is the greatest part and it's the most important part. And it's the only reason why people get married. Like if that's our cultural lens, then when you start using that metaphor of intimacy uh, with, with the savior, now it gets creepy. Now it gets weird, you know, and, and I can see where people could be uncomfortable with it. I'll tell you this real quick, Vicki, and I'll let, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, yeah, I mean, for years, I didn't like certain types of worship music because I called it Jesus is my boyfriend music. And I'm like, yep. I didn't want to have images of Jesus. Lindsay always laughs at this, but I, I, I didn't want to have Jesus as my boyfriend. You know what I'm saying? I know. I know and, exactly and, what you're saying. And, and that's not me coming from a place of I'm, not, I'm unsure of my manhood or insecure. That's just, it was just icky, you know? Mm-hmm. And because, because of that, the cultural condom, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, uh, the cultural uh, label that marriage equals it, or intimacy equals intimacy sex. equals sex. Yeah, yeah. even that yeah. word intimacy. Some people you use that yep. word, and people just they, they check out because oh no, you're using a a word that we only use for sex now. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I talked to the lady that cuts my hair. I mean, my wife was there, I, but I said something about intimacy with 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 the with the Lord, and she just kind of looked at me like, "What intimacy yeah. with the Lord?" I mean, that was their first, mm-hmm. you know, her first thought, and I'm like, "Oh yes. no, yeah." Yeah, absolutely. They love to destroy our words and separate mm-hmm. us from the culture and the context. And um, I think other reasons, and this is just my own wild speculation, and maybe you guys can help me frame this in more uh, gracious terms, or, you know, sometimes I, I tend to be so black and white with things that it, it comes off too strong. But we are the product now of 200 years of stoicism we have been taught 
from mm-hmm. a Roman and a Greek perspective of thought. And that has come into the church. And so the supernatural and the emotion, has, the emotions mm-hmm. kind of back, but the supernatural has mm-hmm. been stripped out. We have to look at everything analytically and scientifically and everything has to be logical. It's more, it's more, everything has to be logical and fit this kind of framework of the seven liberal sciences, which is completely pagan at its core. And yep. so we have all these sermons and it has to have three points and there has to be the little ditty at the beginning. And now there has to be a little film clip and there has to be a little joke. Anytime something really serious or convicting is said, you have to quit crack a joke so that nobody like forgets to tithe next week. And we've got all this stuff going on. But if you look at our, our American roots, and if you go back to like the Puritans and, you know, the, the reformers and whatnot, if you go back to early American Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hand of an angry God, like the foundation of Christianity in our country has been fire and brimstone and pounding the pulpit and your, your sinners and God is angry. And uh, we have strayed all the way to the other side of the pendulum with that now with all of our mm. feel good stuff, yep. but mm-hmm. it's still ingrained in our cultural DNA. When we drive by and we see a church with a steeple, I think this is the reason why so many churches are kind of going away from that now. We just see the church with the steeple and we think God is mad, he's angry, we're sinful. And so I do think that when when we start talking about the softer side of the nature of God where he loved us and laid down his life for us and he's our friend and he's singing over us and he's merciful, there is a part of us culturally that rises up against that because we've spent our entire lives in secular and in religious circles being taught to, you know, live long and prosper. I'm doing this Bach thing right now, right? Like <laughs> we, we have to be, we have to be logical. That's not logical. And if we're not logical and if we come off too feely or emotional, or if we're in a church service and we're crying or, or something like that, then, then we're weak, right? We're weak. And, mm. you know, God forbid someone come up and ask us if something's wrong because we, you know, we've all, we've all got our, our, our poker faces. You know, this is kind of a cool little story. I'm going to tell you about this. Several years ago, I had a, a, a job on the weekends where I would work in a group home with these three adult um, like guys in their twenties who had, you know, autism and down syndrome and things like that. So on Sunday mornings, I would take them to church and they went to, it was a church that had a special, huge Sunday school class for all people with special needs. And Mm, I had this eye opening moment. So you know how everything in America is structured. So the first, first you sing a couple songs and then there's some announcements and then someone comes up and does a teaching on the flannel graph board. And then you break up into your small groups and then there's a snack, you know, like we got to get this all done in an hour. And well, in this Sunday school class that was filled with special needs adults, we would sing some worship songs and you should see them worship. I mean, it was amazing. Mm. Then there was a prayer request time and there was an open mic. And sometimes we would never get to the lesson because there would be a line of these people up in front of the microphone. And it was so heartwarming because 
This is a group of people that would have had a lot of prayer requests for themselves. A lot of them were in and out of the hospital, were on medications, lived in group homes and in, in situations where they had to get along with other people. And it would be a line of, of these adults. And they were all praying for, pray for my staff member. Um, she's mm-hmm. got the flu this week. And uh, pray for my brother and pray for my dog. And And it was so, we couldn't even carry on the teaching half the time because all of these dear people were so willing to be vulnerable and broken in front of other people and share the things in their life that was making them sad or their pain. And I thought, how many small groups or Bible studies or church services have you guys been to where uh, does anyone have any prayer requests and it's crickets and then they just awkwardly move on because no one wants to say I'm broken. And, mm-hmm. and so we've got this stoicness to us. And that I think even when we talk about the love of God, it's in the context of, I know I'm a crappy person, and be, but because he loves me, he'll forgive me. But they're not thinking about love in the same context as we think of it down here. Like when we're with our friends and we're laughing and we're, we're throwing our arms around each other and we're locking our arm in arm and we're taking walks and we're sharing stuff with each other. and you know, I just love the idea of like, oh man, wouldn't it be so fun if, if Jesus interacted with us and he was on Instagram and he was sending you like hilarious memes and you were laughing together. And that's not what people think about when they think of love. They think I'm banking on his love so that I don't burn in hell. It's, 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 it's almost, Mm. it's like fire insurance. And, and so, I mean, just look at our, look at our dysfunction when it comes to human relationships, look at the dysfunction in marriage, look at the divorce rates. If this is the context by which we define love and intimacy, of course, we're going to be uncomfortable when Jesus says mm-hmm. that that's something that he has mm-hmm. to offer us. Well, Vicki, I was wondering, do you think the whole emphasis on agape as opposed to phileo, if I'm saying that one right, plays into that, that we, we want this idea of selfless love and action and and yeah of course we we need that but but we never want to talk of of our relationship with god in terms of that phileo those affections yeah um i wonder if that doesn't play yeah. into it and that's why we're more comfortable with agape than, than we are phileo i wrote down something when you were talking Dickie, that i think i'm going to explore is jesus's love as a form of camaraderie that's what you're talking about there is yeah. our our English word camaraderie, which can mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be love, but love involves camaraderie. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. When when you look at the things like take a person in your life, like a friend, like not a family member or a spouse. Take take the person like your best friend, your buddy, like the guy you go camping with or or the chick you go and have coffee with or whatever it is. And if we actually had to write down on paper why that person is our best friend, I think we would be surprised. I mean, I mm. might even I might even do this. Like you you think it's going to be like this is the person that, you know, um lent me the 10 grand when, you know, I was going to lose my my house or you know, you think it's going to be these huge things, but if I think if we really break down the people who are our best friends, it's going to be a list of really trivial things. 
they're hysterical. They always, they always, they have a sixth sense about when I am on. They, they, it's like they can read my mind. They know when I'm unhappy. They say what's wrong. They're, they're always there to pray for me when things are going bad. They don't judge me. They don't. It, it's not these big, huge things. And even with spouses, I think if you know, if the dookie hit the fan, uh, and you really had to write down on paper why your spouse is the number one love of your life. I don't think too many people are going to put on the top of the list, greatest sex I ever had. <laughs> it, it's going to be unmeasurable. silly. Like, like every morning when I wake up, they've already made the coffee. It, you know, they, they put the toilet seat down there. You know, we, we like the same stuff. Um, it's going to be these seemingly trivial things. And so why do we eliminate that? Like I had my Bible study this morning. Like we feel like the only way that we can connect with Jesus is prayer, worship, praying, journaling, fasting. You know, I might be missing one or two in there going to church or whatever, but every moment of my day, this isn't a spiritual thing to say, there's not a moment of my day where I'm not aware of the fact that Jesus is alive and he's in the room with me. Mm. It's an awareness. And that's mm. part of intimacy because I yeah, have that... friends. Yeah. I have friends yeah. I haven't thought about in years. You know, you forget about the, it, that. Just that awareness that he's with me here. That's intimacy. Yeah. What, what keeps going through my head through this whole conversation you're just saying here is presence. Yeah. And that goes back to Emmanuel. God is with us. Yeah. And yes. and it's like he he's he's been I mean, I'm not making light of the cross. I'm not making light of our, our forgiveness of sins by the blood of Jesus. But even then, that was just a, a something to be overcome for him to be with us. Yeah. Yeah. To for his presence. You know, and you're right, that's with Sandy. Uh the best times with, with Sandy is when we're together. We don't even have to say anything. We watch dumb shows on TV and we're just together and there's a connection there. And yes, and that's what it is. Or I listen to her tell me the same story seven times. She's going to get, get <laughs> she's going to edit this and laugh. We but all I listen do it, Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to her. You don't edit this out. This goes to the podcast anyway. So, but, 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 but it's that presence. She's out of town right now, and and I miss her. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm like, and I'm I'm going to be not vulgar, but I, it's not like I'm I'm ready for some sex. I, I miss her. I miss her presence. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I love that. You know, and sometimes like I know that when my mom died. You know, when you think of like losing someone like who's your best friend in the world, like my mom was, you think that it's going to be these huge things like, oh, who am I going to call when I need advice? Or who am I going to, who's going to buy my groceries when I'm broke? Because I've spent all my money on mm. guitars. <laughs> so, uh, you know. <laughs> amen. <laughs> How, can I get an amen? Um, <laughs> amen. <laughs> uh, the things that I miss about my mom are the dumbest things. It's like, you know, when you're in a room and like that guy starts talking and, you know, and you just, you side eye and mom's not there. Like that person to like 
like go you know giggle with is gone or yeah exactly or or you're driving in the car and you go by this like field of sunflowers and it's beautiful and you turn and then you're in the car alone and it's almost like there are things in life that aren't meaningful if they're just yours you know it's like they Mm. they become meaningful when you share it with someone else and you see like a mirror image of the delight that you're feeling, you see that delight unfolding on their face and you're connected at that moment. And so, yeah, I can go and look at a beautiful mountain or a beautiful redwood tree and I can be filled with awe and I can say, oh, Jesus, that's beautiful. But it's incomplete now because I can't send that picture to my mom or I can't call my mom or or my mm. mom can't be there with me. And, you know, it's not that, that um, you know, I, I don't want to go too far with that either, but with with, with with the intimacy piece, you know, we can be intimate with people that we aren't married to. And it's those little things. And I love how you use the word presence, because if, if all of a sudden, like, let's just say God removed that part of our brain where we remembered who he was, what if all of a sudden his presence or our, our knowledge of his presence went away? And a lot of people would say, well, like, oh, okay, cool, great. I wouldn't have to be thinking about my sin or, oh, this would be a great um, opportunity Mm -hmm. to do something sinful Mm -hmm. because he's not watching. But you got to look at it like if God removed his presence from you for 20 seconds so that you could get a feel for that, you wouldn't feel freedom and independence. You would feel what Jesus Christ felt on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? me? You, Mm -hmm. You would feel the wrath of God being poured out on you. You would be holding the cup of his wrath. That's what it would feel like without his presence. And so, you know, by, by way of grace, there's people out there, atheist, agnostic, they spend their whole life cursing him or decrying him or proving or debunking him. But the fact of the matter is you feel his presence at every moment, whether you appreciate it or realize it or not, because if that awareness was taken from you, you'd be in terror instantly. Mm. You know, what's, yeah. what's interesting there, Vicki, uh, is the Orthodox have a different take on hell than us in the West do, and that's part of their take on hell, is it's not fire and, and internally burning up. It's actually being further away from the presence of God. Yes. You know, and, and, and so like some people are further away and some people are even further away, like solitary confinement does to humans. Yes. And that is far worse punishment than being in, I mean, I don't know. I, I've never been in either one. But to me, that's worse to to have that awareness of God taken away from you and to be alone. Oh, gosh. But particularly when we're made in God's image, which I, I agree with Heiser, but I disagree with him. I think part of, in Genesis chapter one, part of being made in his image is the relationship between male and female. Um, but I, I, do, I do think he was talking about the divine counsel when he used us. But I also think that that there is a place in Trinitarian theology for us to to say male and female is an example, but it's that it's that togetherness that we that we see in the Trinity that He wanted to image on the earth. But we see in marriage, and it goes back to presence. Man, we have chased a rabbit, though. I just I was going to say, where, where did we start this? <laughs> Ephesians, I think. Yeah, no, you know, you know what I was thinking. We've kind of come full circle because at the very beginning, I said, you know, I. I'm sometimes I get really tired of talking about the darkness all the time. And we all just naturally migrated through just an organic discussion into 
talking about the presence of Jesus. And that's not something that I get invited to talk about a lot. And, you know, for people who don't know me, they, you just think like, well, she's the fringe girl that always talks about the demons and stuff. And this is my heart. I mean, for, for the, for the yeah. 51 years that I've sat in a church pew and learned the word of God and memorized the word of God and went to school and, and took classes and went to Greek classes. And uh, I wasn't learning about demons and, and darkness. And uh, that's, that's not where my heart is. That's not what excites me the most. And, you know, it, it was interesting, you guys, I was doing some coursework yesterday. I've been doing some Judd Burton classes. Uh, shout out to Dr. Judd. Yay. And so I was reading one of the, the course texts yesterday, and it was really fascinating. It was talking about the origins of the theater and how um, these elaborate plays and things would be done. And it was so fascinating to me because it was all under the umbrella of these plays were supposed to be liturgical. And so they were all mm -hmm. about the gospel message of good triumphing over evil and God winning and all this. But here's the deal. All of these, these theatrical productions were about the devil. And they would have these, you know, yeah. pant, like hoofed gods with horns running around naked on the stage, you know, and all this stuff. And uh, here's the deal, guys. If you've got a two-hour play or a two-hour movie, and at the very, very, very end, Jesus comes in and he wins, you've still spent two hours glorifying the devil and showing what he's doing. And so it, it was interesting to me. And, and we got to just be careful about this as, as Christians and as pastors and as podcasters, that mm -hmm. sometimes even when we are framing our, our discussions in liturgical or spiritual or religious framework, and we're quoting scripture and we're saying at the very end, you know, but Jesus wins there, it is still possible to have a completely man-centered or even demonic-centered discussion. Because if, if at the end of two hours, Jesus wins in the end, but all you've done is talked about all the schemes of the devil, the person, the way our brains work is we're going to be mulling over and ruminating and, uh, on all, yeah. of the, all, all of the devil stuff. And so mm -hmm. it, it's interesting when I was reading that yesterday, because it was just like, they were under the impression that all of these theatrical productions were liturgical and they were really just giving glory to, to the devil, even though the devil yeah. got his just desserts in the end, the whole thing is let's watch him ranting and raving for two hours. So I love the way this discussion went. I, and I love it yeah, when the spirit too. of God has a, has a different plan than we do. So I'm well, yeah. yeah, I was going to jump. I was going to go back to some discussion about divine or, or evil tech that you brought up earlier and <laughs> but now I just want to talk you know I, I worked at a camp for special needs kids for oh. in my college years in Missouri and yeah that was the coolest part for me too was oh, just man. giving space to these unlistened to kids and not just yeah. be minister to but to minister and yeah, yeah, yeah I, I thought about that yeah and, and there's and there's no guile there's no guile with them. Yeah. That's what amazes me. There's I no know. guile. It, 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 and they would just soon minister to you than have you minister to them. Yep. And, you know, it's incredible. It, I know. It's, it's self-giving, you know. It's amazing. Th this, is, this is sort of controversial because there's such a stigma and a wrong, like the way that we judge success and, and beauty. Like we, li we live in a culture where if a child is going to have a special needs, you abort it, right? Like that's our stupid mm -hmm. thinking. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
And so I don't know how to frame this in a way where people will understand what I'm saying. So if this comes out botched, you guys can help me to kind of put this back together. But in the many, many, many years that I have worked with special needs kids and adults, and I've done stuff with Johnny Erickson Tata's ministry, Johnny and Friends, I've done respite camps. Um, I've been on um, boards. I've worked in group homes and day centers. I've spent probably a good portion of the last 20 years in some way or another being involved in those types of ministries. And uh, I really feel when I'm around that community that I'm kind of with my, my people, like it's a very safe environment because it's a bunch of people that are not afraid to be vulnerable and they're not afraid to be real. And so um, this is the part I don't quite know how to say when, when you look at the way Adam and Eve were created and the way they were when they walked in the garden and they didn't have the knowledge of good and evil, they didn't have the secret mysteries of heaven and all the esoteric knowledge and they didn't know the evil and um, they were innocent and they were pure. Mm-hmm. When I am around doing my, my ministry to, to special needs and I'm observing and usually really emotional, like you're, you're, crying as you're seeing what's unfolding before you because you're seeing people who are more selfless than you are, who are more gracious and who I I love it. Like during the talent shows and stuff, like a kid will get up and, and sing or something. And all of his buddies in the audience are like whooping and hollering and screaming and cheering. There's none of this like competition or who did it better or jealousy or, and I really think when I personally am around that community, I do feel like I think this is maybe what it was supposed to look like. I think if we hadn't Mm. had a fall, I think this is what it would have looked like. And I think that's why the enemy tries so hard to make women, children, orphans, and the disabled, because those were the people that Jesus was constantly defending in the New Testament. They were the ones constantly under fire. And I think that in Jesus's eyes, those were the ones that had the the closest sort of finger on the pulse to the kind of genuineness and authenticity and uh, purity and innocence that was probably originally intended. And I think that when we go back to perfection, I I hope that I hope that's what a lot what it looks like to tell you the honest Mm. truth. It, sound, it reminds me that, and I'm, I'm going to say this in the King James because that's how I memorized it as a kid, but suffer not the children to come unto me. Yeah. Or, yeah. How about let's, let's substitute children with suffer not the childlike to come unto me. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Vicki. This has been awesome. I, this is, wow. This is just, uh, it was an awesome time of, of, of fellowship. That's what I feel like it was, fellowship. More, yeah. more, than, a, more than a podcast, so. But uh, will you um, will you do me a favor? Will you pray for us and for the audience real quick and we can go? Absolutely. We'll be happy to do that. Father in heaven, thank you for this time uh, that we had together. And thank you for redirecting our conversation. I, I love it when you kind of take all of the, the, uh, the, the, you take the script and you just crumple it up and throw it away. And I'm so glad that you stepped in and took the glory for yourself. Yes. Oh, there's just hundreds of thousands of hours on the airwave of trying to figure out the devil and what he's doing and what he's doing in the world. And um, I all just the glorification of 
of everything that the enemy and the elites are doing. And that boring is so much more exciting to contemplate what you're doing covertly behind the scenes. And uh, Mm -hmm. I I love, I love the way that you don't always show what you're doing because then when, when the curtains come back, uh, it's spectacular when, when those Mm -hmm. unexpected um, acts of God come into the scene. And so father, I'm content to stare at the, the drawn curtains on the stage and just know that good stuff's going on behind them. I don't have to know mm-hmm. every single thing that the stagehands are doing. And so, Father, we just uh, we just come to you and pray for uh, patience and anticipation. Will you allow your people to sit in those theater seats, staring at the curtains, and not feel the need to be getting up and throwing the curtains back or going behind the stage and hurrying things along We know from the whole Abraham-Sarah situation that when we speed you along in your plans, things can get Mm. really messed up. And so, Father, make us a rapt, patient, eager audience, because we know that despite everything that the enemy is doing, you know, the enemy, that's a bunch of narcissists. So they have to be showing us every step of the way of everything on their plan, everything that they're doing, because they want that awe and that fear built up. And you're content to just sit there behind the the curtains, working away on your set. And when you pull back those curtains, it's going to blow our minds. And so rather than fear at what the enemy is doing, I want to funnel all of my emotions into an eager anticipation because I know those those curtains are going to be thrown back. And so, Father, I just pray that you would uh, bless this podcast in whatever way you see fit. And we don't have to judge the success of this conversation based upon anything other than just the faith to know that you were glorified in mm. in yes. hearing three people excitedly talk about their relationship with you. Yes. And so, yes. Father, just be glorified in that. And I just pray that you would stir the hearts of the people listening to this, and that you give them a vision to have that intimacy and that presence with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Best podcast ever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening and supporting us. And remember, stay naturally supernatural.